Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. Galatians, chapter 6. As we come to the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, remembering that, in fact, the chapter divisions is something that we were created much later on in the 13th century, I would remind you that the letter is to be taken as a whole and not just bits and pieces here and there. And that there must be an organic connection between the whole thing, between the last chapter and what comes before it. This helps us, I think, to avoid the danger of simply reducing it to some type of moralistic teaching of some kind that's just sort of, you know, you need to be nice, you need to be good. Go on and be good little Christians. So I've mentioned before there's a tendency to see the final chapter of Paul's letters as, as Paul hurriedly trying to throw everything in that he could at the last minute to bring the letter to a close. And First Thessalonians is what comes to mind here, First Thessalonians 5, uh, from verses 16 to 22. Be joyful always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. You will forgive me, but I still hear this language in King James. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from the appearance of evil. So at the end, Paul's like, well, I've I've got to put this in too. First of all, we need to remember that the verse divisions are also something relatively new. In fact, they're much newer than the chapter divisions. The first person who divided the New Testament into verses was a Dominican scholar in the 15th century. And then a Frenchman, Robert Etienne, created an alternative numbering in his 1551 edition of the Greek New Testament. By the time we come to 1560, this was sort of the accepted way that the verses were divided. So when we have all these verses, these short little things, this is not necessarily the way that Paul wrote it. I mean, he wrote it as a text. Um, He was making statements within a particular context. I said this last week, I think oftentimes we see the opening verses of Paul's letters as sort of flowery and almost unnecessary. Um, And when we come to the end, we sort of think that Paul's trying to rush to put everything in. And the picture that comes to mind for me is going to see a movie. And people, you know, they don't mind if they come in late and miss the opening credits. And I don't know if you've noticed, but as soon as the movie's over and and the credits, the closing credits, people are up and out. I'm like... The movie's not finished, is it? There's still stuff on the screen. In the same way, Paul's letter is not finished yet. We've come to the last chapter, but he isn't done yet. If we take this view, we will do so at our own peril, and we will miss out on wonderful treasures here in Scripture. What I'd like to do today is to review what we've seen thus far in the book of Galatians and hopefully give us understanding as to what Paul is saying here in chapter 6. 
Paul writes to the believers to the churches in Galatia, where he and Barnabas had preached on the first missionary journey. Paul is writing because someone or you know, individual or group from Jerusalem, Paul doesn't say they're from Jerusalem, but I think that in fact is where they're from, went to Galatia after Paul and they were telling the Galatians, yes, you may be believers, you may be Christians, but you're lacking something. This message from these men from Jerusalem was not in keeping with the gospel. It was not based on love and it did not have its foundation in Jesus the crucified Christ. Rather, their message was rooted in the law as a basis for being accepted by God. In responding to this false teaching, and to make his case regarding the good news of the gospel, Paul tells a series of stories, which we saw in chapters 1 through 4. First of all, in the first two chapters, we have Paul's story in three parts. His first visit to Jerusalem, within the context of his conversion. Then, secondly, his second visit to Jerusalem, in which what he preaches is seen to be in line with what the apostles preach. So this isn't some new fangled gospel that he's preaching. This is what the apostles preach. And then the third part is his confrontation of Peter with Peter in Antioch. In chapter 3, we have a whole series of stories. First of all, the story of the Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Then the story of Abraham, the story of the curse, the story of the promise, the story of the law. And then finally, the story of faith, the coming of faith. In chapter 4, we have the story of what it means to be an heir. But the language is that of Exodus. And so we read of slavery and redemption and inheritance. Then Paul tells how he went to Galatia. And here his story and the Galatian story converge. And finally, chapter 4 ends with the story of the free woman and Hagar. The free woman is Sarah, but he never mentions her name. She's always the free woman. And here we find a series of pairs. You have two mothers the free woman and Hagar, two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, two covenants, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic, two mountains, Mount Zion and Sinai, two cities, the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem, and then two conditions, freedom and being in bondage. Chapter 4 ends with these words, Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So we are free as those who have put their trust in Jesus. Chapter 5, which there's no chapter division, it's the very next statement. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's the idea of freedom. We are free. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be free? So Paul immediately, this is still in chapter 5, verse 1, Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. When Paul speaks of being free, he doesn't mean free to do as we want. He doesn't mean free to choose to do what we want. And he doesn't mean that we are free to choose what is right and what is wrong. What he means is we are free from the condemnation of the law, the curse of the law. That is, if you put your trust in the law, you are condemned because there's no way you can keep it all. It can only end in condemnation. In Christ Jesus, we have salvation quite apart from the law. In Christ Jesus, we are freed from the condemnation of the law. In Christ Jesus, we have died to our old identity, that of the flesh, which Paul talks about in chapter 5, apart from God. And in Christ Jesus, we have new life in the Spirit. The old identity is marked by the works of the flesh. And Paul gives a list of 15 sins, not an exhaustive list, 
but I think a sample of what the flesh, that is human nature apart from God, produces. And as we saw when we went through this, we could put this into four categories. Self-gratification rather than caring for others. Putting something in the place of God, usually ourselves, idolatry. Refusing to love my neighbor, this we would call social sins, and this is the longest part of the list. And then being out of control. We call this drinking sins, but it isn't drinking as such. It is being drunk, being out of control. The new life in the spirit is different than the old life in the flesh. Those 15 sins, now we hear nine qualities. The qualities are the graces that demonstrate our attitude toward God. Love, joy, and peace. The qualities are graces that demonstrate our attitude toward others. Patience, kindness, and goodness. And goodness I would have you keep in mind. And then qualities are graces that demonstrate our attitude toward ourselves. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Having given these two lists, at the end of chapter 5, Paul then writes, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. But before we leave chapter 5 and move on to the next, this last chapter, chapter 6, there are two verses in this chapter 5 that seem to contradict each other. And the resolution of this paradox, I think, cannot be ignored. We have to figure this out. It's verse 14 and then verse number 18. Verse 14 says the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Then verse number 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. If you think about it from a certain point of view, you might think that Paul is saying you don't have to love your neighbor as yourself. Because he says the whole law is summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself. But then he says you're not under the law. So it seemed that I have no obligation, I have no responsibility to love my neighbor as myself. It's a seeming contradiction. And it's a reason for this extended review of Galatians. If we do not understand what Paul is saying about the law, then we will not understand at all what he is saying. If we don't understand what Paul intends in the matter of authority, which we've looked at the last two weeks, we will not understand what he is saying. The law cannot save us, Paul is telling us. That is not to say the law has no purpose in our lives. As creatures made in the image of God, we are under authority. Authority which, by the way, we rebel against. As new creatures who are being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ, we are under authority, which we are to obey. The new life in the Spirit is one of Christ-likeness. And this means, in part, that I don't get to choose what I can do and what I should not do. I am to obey the Spirit. I am to be like Christ. Well, this is all well and good, one might say. And we could spend a great deal of time on this and sort of wish that Paul had spent more time on it. But instead, he moves on to the next issue. And this is found in chapter 6. Here we find two major principles that are to guard this new life we have in the Spirit. The first principle is this, and it's found in the first two verses. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. We are intimately joined to one another, just as we are intimately joined to Jesus Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. 
But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. When we bear each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. And there it is. Law. Authority. We are under authority. We are to do these things. It's not optional. This is what we're supposed to do. We talked about last week, community, and um, Gia was talking, we were talking this week, that community is something that we desire, but it's something that we dread because of the costs involved. Authority, on the other hand, is something that we often detest, particularly when we think in terms of freedom. But here in the first principle, we are told that as Christians, we are not alone. We are not alone. We are to carry each other's burdens. As a Christian, I am under authority. I am to fulfill the law of Christ. That's the first principle. The second is found in verses 3 through 5. And that is that the Christian has a responsibility to watch himself or herself. It's also there, by the way, in verse number 1. That we need to take care lest we would fall into temptation. While it is true that we are not alone... We are individuals. We do have individual gifts and callings and responsibilities. When I become a part of the people of God, I don't sort of melt into the the situation and I lose all sense of who I am. I become a son of God. I am a person within the family of God. We're not all alike. And as I've said often before, the call of scripture is not to uniformity, it is to unity. We're not all supposed to be the same, we're not the same. But we are to be united. With these two principles in mind, we come to verses 6 through 10. Verse 6 deals with the financial support of those whose calling it is to teach and preach in the church. Verse 6, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. And the key phrase here is, must share all good things. Just briefly, two things to keep in mind. Share comes from the same root word as fellowship, poinonia. Okay? And it is in this sharing that we find unity in the church between the one who receives instruction and the one who is instructing. The second thing is, good things points back, in my opinion, to goodness in the fruit of the Spirit. Now we come to verses 7 and 8. And we hear familiar words. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his flesh, from that nature will will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. I can imagine that there are some people who think that this, in fact, is the primary point of this chapter. That this is the primary principle in the chapter. This is it. I would disagree. I see this as the application of the two principles we've already seen. In fact, a major reason for this whole letter is to make... uh, Let me start over. A major reason for reviewing what we've seen thus far in this letter to the Galatians is to make this point that while we might make general application, and I don't know about you, but I've heard my share of sermons for someone who has tried to confront or scare me into not doing certain things because God will not be mocked. If you do something, you're going to reap the consequences. Um, Sort of a a Christian karma view of things. 
I think the specific application is to be seen in light of what we've just looked at, verses 1 through 6. That is, we are to carry one another's burdens. This is evidence, this is fruit of life in the Spirit. The reality is, more often than not, we would rather not be bothered. I've got plenty of problems of my own uh, to carry somebody else's burden, to share their burden. That's That's not the first thing that comes to mind. If we give in to the self-centered nature of the flesh, something that supposedly we have set aside, that we have crucified for new life in the spirit, then we will suffer the consequences. On the other hand, if we live the new life in the spirit as we should, we will reap eternal life. But immediately this raises serious questions. What kind of motivation is Paul offering? The fear of destruction or the promise of eternal life? I mean, are we to be governed by the fear of judgment? Are we to be motivated by the prospect of reward? And the second question that comes to mind is, this reaping eternal life, I thought there was nothing we could do to gain eternal life. These are important questions, and we just can't sort of brush over them. They are connected, and we need to answer them. First of all, the matter of judgment is meant to make us focus, I think in part, on issues that are outside this, this life. See, one day I will no longer be here, but that does not mean that that is the end of things. There is something beyond this life. It is, I think, what N.T. Wright calls life after death after life. We will live, and then we will die, and then we will live again. And when we hear of judgment that causes us to look across the chasm of death, the darkness of death, into the life we will have. And so we are to act now with obedience. We are to obey the authority. We are to obey the Spirit. And with this idea of judgment in mind, it provides us three things. First of all, perspective, that all that we do must be done in light of eternity. You'll notice that Paul uses the word reap three times in these two verses. If we are not careful, we will forget that this is not the whole story. We will forget that this life is transitory. We will forget that there is life after death, after life. So it gives us a perspective. Secondly, it gives us a sense of direction, that we serve God. He is the one who will judge us, not we ourselves. We're not here to serve God. Let's be careful here. We are to serve each other, but not to be judged by each other, not by ourselves other. God is the one to whom we direct our service. And then thirdly, it gives us, or should give us, a sense of honesty. God is the one who will judge. I might deceive you. You might deceive me. We may deceive ourselves. But God knows. God knows what we are doing. The matter of direction and honesty, I think, recall the words from verses 3 and 4. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions that he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. As to winning eternal life or suffering destruction, Paul doesn't use the verbs win or suffer. He uses the verb reap, which points to the future. And thus we find what we've looked at already in this book, the already and not yet, that should inform our thinking. We are to live in the present already. We are to obey 
already. In light of the future, judgment, not yet. In many things of daily life, we do this already. We just maybe have not thought about it. You buy groceries, the already, for meals that are not yet cooked. So, not yet. You may save money, in the present already, for some future purchase or purpose in the future. That's the not yet. We may take care of our health now, the already, because in the future, the not yet, we want to remain relatively healthy. The reality is, even though we live with this already not yet, we oftentimes do not do the things that we should. We fail to take into account that there will be future consequences or results to our actions. But I would remind you that for all the general application we might get from these two verses, Paul is thinking in terms of being a part of the body of Christ, restoring gently someone who has fallen, carrying each other's burdens, carrying our own loads. And this is hard work. This is something oftentimes we would rather not do. Thus we find what Paul writes in verse number 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It can be exhausting work doing as we are told, restoring, caring, fulfilling the law of Christ, carrying our own loads. The temptation is to give in to our default setting, the flesh, and that is to forget others, to reject God's authority and do as we please, and to be self-centered, to make it all about me. Division within the church, dissension can make us give up on people. Cynicism, I think, is a deadly disease that quickly finds a place in our heart. You see, part of cynicism is we think we know more than we actually do. We think we know why people do what they do. We think we know what people are thinking. Do we really know why people are doing what they do? Well, the cynic claims that he or she does. In a sense, the cynic looks down from above. And in this case, the cynic would say, this brother's fallen into sin, he's going to fall again. Give up on him. And Paul says, no. Do not give up. Do not give up. We live in an age of suspicion in which everything that people do, we're somehow trying to figure out why they did that. And Paul says, don't give up on each other. It's hard work to be a church. It's hard to be the people of God as a congregation. Don't give up on each other. One of the greatest obstacles, one of the greatest difficulties is that of simple fatigue. can easily lose heart and run out of strength, run out of gas, when we come up against the same problem over and over again. In the long run, maybe not in this life, but certainly in eternity, we will reap the harvest. So in the already, don't give up. Because the not yet is not here yet. And there we will stand before God. So now we are to be obedient. In light of all this, Paul writes verse number 10. Therefore, here he's drawing a conclusion. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This verse can affect how we view the verses that come before it. On the one hand, we might think that the focus is on doing good. 
being a person who does good to others, which could be seen as loving your neighbor as yourself. On the other hand, as I would argue and as I have argued, the focus is on the primary principle at the beginning of the chapter. You are not alone. You belong to the people of God. You have a responsibility to do good. Give evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in goodness and doing good. Our primary focus in terms of people should be those who belong to the family of believers. As Paul puts it, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Why? Because shouldn't you do good to all people? Well, all believers are the children of Abraham by faith in Jesus. All believers are thus heirs according to the promise. All believers are the children of God through faith in Jesus. All believers have the Spirit of God. All believers are baptized into Christ. We are united with him. All believers are one in Christ. We all belong to each other. And when we learn to love our brothers and sisters and so fulfill the law of Christ, then we can also learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now we come to verse number 11, which is a fascinating verse. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. In Paul's day, one did not normally sit down and write a letter if one wanted to communicate with another person. Instead, you would hire a scribe or a secretary, and the person who wanted to write would dictate, and the, the, this professional scribe or secretary would write out what you wanted to say. We know from Paul's other letters that there are others who wrote it, Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians, Luke, Timothy, Silas, um, a part of the reason for this I've mentioned before is that up until the 13th century, people could not read silently. And so the idea of actually composing something in your head and then writing it down, as far as we tell, people just didn't do this. They had to speak it out and then somebody else would write it down. Now, careful examination of thousands of letters from the first century, if you could look at these letters, you would find something very, very distinctive. And that is that the first part of the letter, usually the vast majority of the letter, would be very carefully written, almost with a professional penmanship. This is the secretary or the scribe writing it out. And then at the very end, you'd see less formal, sort of sloppy writing, and that is where the person who dictated the letter would, at the end, sort of put their own postscript in, oftentimes summarizing what the letter had said to sort of let the receiver know, yeah, yeah, I actually, okay, this is all very neatly written, and you might wonder, well, who wrote this? Or did the secretary or the scribe actually write down what you said? And they would summarize, these are the things that I've said in the letter, and just so you know that it's me. Um, that's why it comes at the conclusion of the letter. This is what we find in verse number 11. At this point, Paul takes up the stylus or the pen to write himself. Now stop and think about that. There would only be one letter to the Galatians that Paul would write on. This would then be copied. Okay? And so the penmanship would be uniform all throughout in the copies. More than that, whenever the letter was written, you know, if I'm reading somebody's handwritten letter, you can't tell if there's a change in penmanship. So Paul has to state this. 
for the first people who heard this first letter and to those who would get copies later on. It is at verse number 11 that Paul himself starts to write. Now, why the large letters? Some have suggested that Paul had poor eyesight. Um, that is part of his thorn in the flesh from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. After all, he was blinded for three days uh, the encounter on the road to Damascus. And it was suggested that his eyes never fully recovered. I think that's sort of weak. I mean, if God heals your eyes, I would think he would do a better job than that. But in chapter 4, you may remember that Paul, as he tells his story and that of the Galatians converging, he says, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. You know, of all the things that they might have done, that they would tear out their eyes and give it to him, I think points to perhaps some difficulty with his eyesight. I must convince I'm not, I must confess I'm not convinced. I think a better alternative is to understand Paul is saying, listen, this is capital letter stuff, okay? I'm writing this. I want you to pay attention. Now, hopefully they've been paying attention all along. But at this point, as Paul summarizes his letter, he writes it with his own hand. And he writes it with big letters so they will know, in fact, this is what Paul has said. The Lord willing, we will look at this next Sunday. This summary of the letter as Paul writes it out in his own hand. But in closing, you know, I reviewed much of what we've looked at as we've gone through the book of Galatians. But I did so because of verses 7 and 8. That, like with so much of scripture, I think, if we're not careful, we will look at it in the light of our own experience or in the light of the culture that is around us. And so many times when I hear people using these verses, two things come to mind. One is karma, which is a Hindu doctrine. And the other is the sense of being nice to one another, which, as one writer has put it, seems to be the only virtue in a postmodern world. Now, you, can't, you can't tell people what to do. People reject authority. Yeah, but you need to be nice. And if we're not careful when we come to verses 7 and 8, we're like, oh, yeah, I get this. Yeah, that karmic thing, you know, that uh, you better be nice to people because, you know, what goes around comes around and, you know, you just better watch what you're doing. Yeah, you need to be nice to one another. I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. Verses 7 and 8 don't stand in isolation. They stand in the context and the flow of this book, and particularly of the last chapter, in which Paul tells them, listen, you are not alone as believers. Do not live your Christian faith in isolation. You are to work with one another, carry each other's burdens. And secondly, you have a calling. You have gifts. You have things God wants you to do. There are things each of you can do that I cannot. So God doesn't call on me to do those things. He's called you to do those things. So as a Christian, you are to do those things. And then Paul says, okay, God's not mocked. You need to obey. You need to obey. One day we will answer for what we have done in this life. Now, by the grace of God, Jesus has paid for our sins. We will not 
be punished, I believe, for what we have done. But we need to have perspective. We need to have direction in our lives and we need to have a sense of integrity and honesty to know that what I'm doing now, one day I will answer for that. And so while the temptation is to go to default mode and the flesh and be self-centered and do what I want, the reality is I'm called to obey. There is an authority and one day I will answer to that authority face to face. That's pretty serious stuff. And I will answer for what I have done with what God has given me, but I will also answer for how I have treated you, if I have carried your burdens, if I have shared with you, if there has been a unity in the body of Christ. I don't know that we think about this much in the church today. I think everyone's looking forward to heaven, and everything will be fine, and what we read during after the time of confession that all our tears will be wiped away and everything will be fine we don't really have a sense that one day we will stand before God so we need to have integrity in our lives we need to have direction we need to obey the authority and that authority is found in scripture but is communicated to us by the spirit of God The Spirit of God is not simply a guest in our homes. He is to be Lord. Let's not forget that. Let's pray together. Father, it is amazing how easily we twist your words to make them mean what we want. Rather than looking at the whole, it's easier to sort of cut and paste and take out those portions we like and ignore the rest. I thank you for the integrity of Paul's letter, for the wholeness of it. We've tried by your grace to study it that way. And so when we hear of judgment, it is not to create fear, but it is to give us a sense of perspective, a sense of direction to know that our life has purpose. There's a reason you put us here as individuals and as a congregation. May we spend the next days thinking about this and meditating on this. May it affect the way we live our lives. May we not be hearers only, but doers of the word. We are grateful, as we saw last week. From the Psalms, you do not treat us as our sins deserve. How gracious you are to us. May we not somehow treat that grace as a cheap thing. May we take seriously your your authority in our lives. And may we be like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we, by your grace, be lights in a world of darkness. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.